Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I'm passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. Ah, these are some of my all-time favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Last week, we heard a portion of a roundtable talk between Dr. Somer and Dr. Gruber regarding Dr. Somer's book from 2009 titled Bodies of God and the World of Ancient Israel. We heard about the various developments of thought that said God does have a body or that God is without form. We also heard Dr. Somer anchor his thoughts and conclusions in ancient Mesopotamian documents, which brought up some interesting ideas about fluidity, that a god could inhabit a stone or multiple places at the same time while still remaining in heaven. And he was very careful to say the Israelites were not polytheists like their neighbors, But they did believe that their one God, this God of the universe, he also had a sort of fluidity that the polytheists thought about their gods and goddesses. Maybe you need an example, because I was getting to the point where I thought that would be helpful. In his book, Dr. Somer refers to 2 Samuel 15. This is when Absalom asked David if he can leave Jerusalem to fulfill his vow to God in Hebron. So the question is this, why does he have to leave Jerusalem to do that? And this is all within the context of Absalom's conspiracy to overthrow the kingdom. But his request is one that seems to make sense to David, and he allows Absalom to go. And a portion of Dr. Somer's answer is connected to his thoughts from last week. So if you haven't heard that episode, you may want to go back and listen to that one first. Otherwise, lean in and enjoy the conversation. So I think in the ancient Near East generally, there was a belief that a god could become, or a goddess, could become manifest in a particular object that would be located in a temple. So Marduk was present in the Tsalmu, in the temple of Marduk in Babylon, the, the Esagila temple, but he was also present in the Salmu of the, uh, uh, that was across the street in the temple of Nabu, his son, because in, in, in the temple of his son, Nabu, the god Nabu, the Bilgul Navo, there was also a little chapel for Nabu's dad, and there was a Salmu of, of Marduk there. So he's, Marduk was physically present in two Salmus, really in two bodies that were across the street from each other, and he was present in lots of other places as well. And as a result, you, you got the idea, the idea developed in, ancient, in the ancient Near East that there were local manifestations of a heavenly deity. There was the Ishtar in heaven, but there was also Ishtar of Arbella and Ishtar of Nineveh. Um, there, was, there were Baals all over the place who were all the same person, but not exactly the same person. They were and were not the same being. I think that that kind, by the way, I, I think that you see that kind of thinking in Catholicism, um, where there's Mary of Guadalupe and there's the Mary in Poland, who are all the same Mary, and yet there are intensely personal um, devotions to a particular Mary as well. 
I think that a similar idea existed among some Israelites, not all Israelites. It's probably a minority of biblical authors, but some Israelites believe this, that while there was Hashem of Zion, Hashem B'Tzion, um, the, the Hashem who was present in the temple in Jerusalem, but there was also Hashem of Teman and Hashem of Shomeron. We have inscriptions that talk about, ancient Israelite inscriptions that talk about um, Hashem of Teman and Shomeron. And apparently for the family of David, there was also Hashem Bechevron. There was the Hashem who was present in Hebron. And so when Absalom had sort of been exiled for a while from Judah, when he was, um, you know, not ha- when he didn't have a relationship with his father, David, when, when they were estranged, estranged, he wanted to go back home to Jerusalem. And so he made a vow, but it's interestingly, he, he was he was up in the what we call the Golan Heights now. He was living in an Assyrian kingdom, not Assyrian, an Aramean kingdom. And while he was there, he made a vow not simply to Hashem, but to Hashem in Hebron, that if you let me go back home to Jerusalem, I will I will worship you. I will worship you, Hashem be Hebron. Probably, why would he make that? vow not just to Hashem, but to this local manifestation of Hashem, probably because his family originally was from Bethlehem, just north of Hebron. And so that's probably a manifestation of Hashem that his family was closer to. Why would a Mexican-American living in Chicago go through a lot of trouble to travel, spend money that maybe she doesn't have a whole lot of, to go to Guadalupe in, in Mexico to to express her her love of Mary there, when there's lots of Catholic churches in the city of Chicago where she she could just walk there and express her love there. Well, but for her family, which originally came from Mexico, the devotion to Mary at that place was particularly special. The same sort of things going on with Avshalom, with Absalom, when he he, he makes this vow and says, "I'll, I'll worship you there if you bring me back to Jerusalem. Well, when he gets back to Jerusalem, he tells his dad, I've got to go to Hebron, there's a temple of Hashem. There's some sort of cult center for Hashem already in Jerusalem in David's day. But Absalom needs to go to Hebron to do this. That shows that he believes, and other Israelites believe, and Judeans believe, that a God can have a local manifestation that is a, it is the same God, but there is something unique about that local manifestation, and you've got to go to the right place to pray to that deity. And so probably there were Israelites who believed that, yeah, there is, there is Hashem, but Hashem is present in local ways, in manifestations that matter to us geographically in a very strong emotional way. One of the words for these smaller scale manifestations um, in biblical Hebrew, I think, was malach. The word malach is usually translated as angel, it usually means a messenger, somebody who's doing a task on behalf of somebody else, who's going on behalf of somebody else. It could be a human messenger as you know, Jacob sends Malachim in front of him to go greet Esau. Those are human beings. Um, more typically, it's a divine messenger who's on a mission. But Malach simply usually means someone who's on a mission who goes on behalf of somebody else. But sometimes in the Bible, the word malach is used differently. And the word malach means a small-scale earthly manifestation of the God Hashem. And then it usually shows up in the phrase malach Hashem or malach Adonai, the, the malach of Adonai, which doesn't mean a heavenly being who's on a mission from God or a mission for God. It means a small-scale manifestation of Hashem on earth. 
I think it means something very, very similar to the Sanskrit term, term avatara. In Hinduism, there can be small-scale manifestations of a heavenly being. This is the, the idea of the Malach Adonai that shows up in some biblical passages, I think is very, very similar. Hmm. Malach Adonai is the same thing as Adonai, but it isn't all of Adonai. That's the Malach Adonai that appears to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 um, in the form of something that's like fire but isn't exactly fire inside of a bush. There are other cases of, of this Malach. It's God, but it's not all of God. It's smaller, user-friendly, more approachable. And here I am so struck with how similar this concept is with other ideas of the mystics. And if you are a longtime listener of Israel Bible Center, you may recall a conversation I had with Dr. Yeshaya Gruber about his IBC course called Kabbalah and the Bible. Now, that is a fascinating course. But just in case you're worried that Dr. Somer is pushing the point of the fluidity of the divine a little too hard— he does make the following clarification point, which pretty much points to all the various points of view within the Bible itself. Yeah, right. I, I should I should note though because we haven't gotten we've I've been speaking a lot we've been speaking a lot about this particular point of view, which is a minority point of view in the Bible, um, within the Hebrew Bible, the idea that the fluidity of divinity, the ability of a divinity to manifest himself or herself in just a little way on the planet Earth without exhausting the heavenly manifestation. The idea that that applies to Hashem shows up in the Bible, but it's a minority position in the Bible. The book of Deuteronomy very strongly reacts to it. When the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 6, verse 4 says, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, Hashem is our God, one Hashem, or Hashem is our God and Hashem is one. I think that Deuteronomy is disagreeing with this point of view, not just with the point of view that there are other gods out there. Deuteronomy is saying there's only one Hashem. There isn't a Hashem of Hebron and a Hashem of Zion and a Hashem of Shomron. No, there's just Hashem who lives in heaven and who no human being will ever see because Hashem is up there and we're down here. In other ways, I think the authors of the priestly parts of the Pentateuch especially Leviticus, but it includes other parts. Genesis chapter one is part of the priestly part of the Pentateuch. That author too, I think says, no, there's just one divine body. There is a divine body, yes, um, but there's only one of them. It only manifests itself in one place. And that one place is going to be the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the, the tent of meeting that the Israelites build in the desert. Ultimately, it, that will be replaced by, by the temple, but there's only one of them, and you can't worship God in lots of different places. There's only this one place. You can talk to God. You can pray wherever you want to. You can pray in the, in the belly of a big fish, but to worship God in the sense of offering sacrifices, no, you can only do that at one place. You got to go to the, the initially to the Mishkan, later to the temple in Jerusalem to do that. And by, again, by, by worshiping, what, what they mean there is worshiping with sacrifices. Praying to God, you can do anywhere. Right. Yeah. So interesting, these different uh, combinations and permutations, or as you say, arguments, debates within the text of the, um, within the texts of the Bible itself, mm -hmm. um, different perspectives about the extent to which we can talk about a physical body, or maybe a different kind of body, it's still a body, but not as physical, it's more meta uh, metaphorical. Well, I wouldn't um, say metaphorical. Or, I think for the priests who believe there is only one body of God, 
I wouldn't say metaphorical. In a way, I wouldn't even necessarily say amorphous. It had a form, but it wasn't made of what we call matter, what right. you and That's I would right. call matter. Yes. Yeah, you said more energy than matter. It might be light. More energy than it. it might be. It's yeah. an intensely bright light, so bright that if you saw it, it would kill you. That's why it always has to be surrounded for the priests. It's always surrounded by the cloud. Mm-hmm. The priests use the technical term kavod to refer to this body of to the body of God, usually translated the presence of God or the glory of God. But it comes from the same word that gives us the word substance or heaviness. It was material. It was real. But maybe if we could, if we could use anachronistically Newtonian terms to talk about it, it was real, but it was more what we would think of as energy than matter. Um, It had a shape. It did have a shape, but it wasn't made of flesh. Maybe you could theoretically put your hand through it, if not for the fact that you would die before you got that close. And I think its size was variable. It was big enough that when it was on top of Mount Sinai and surrounded by a cloud, the Israelites could see it from the bottom of Mount Sinai. So it's incredibly bright and incredibly large that it could be seen from the bottom of Mount Sinai through a heavy cloud, but it's small enough to fit into the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle, which is not a very big space. 10 cubits by 10 cubits, maybe, I don't know, roughly maybe roughly three meters by three meters. So probably its size was variable and it was made of an energy rather than of uh, what we would think of as flesh, but, uh, but it had a form. I think that the, it has the, because we're told that male and female human beings in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, male and female human beings share the basic form or shape that selim or demut of God's body in which case that body, the divine body, probably has something more or, less like a, more or less like a head, two arms, two legs, and a torso. And then we're told that both males and females share that shape. So I think that that's the whole shape. I don't think that there's addi- there are additional appendages. Um, it's the basic shape. So I, I, it's not amorphous. It has a shape. It's not material in the sense of being made of something that, that's heavy, that's matter that we could touch. Um, but it is present in a particular place in a particular time. And that's how I define the word body, something that's present in a particular place and time, distinct from other places and times, even if that thing, uh, regardless of what the, the material is, whether that the material is more matter or, or light or energy or fire. And as the conversation progressed, it seemed that I am not the only one who is thinking of Dr. Gruber's course on Kabbalah, because he then asked Dr. Sommer to address the spirit in Kabbalah and the trinity in Christianity. Make sure you listen to that part of the conversation. It is provocative and thought-provoking, and a link is in the episode notes. But let's end with Dr. Somer's final words to any of us who are listening to this podcast episode who may be hearing these ideas for the first time and feel them to be disconcerting because they challenge the idea of God that they already have. Yeah, I guess I would say three things to that person. First, coming back to where we began, uh, coming back to Maimonides, um, I, I should make clear that while I, I think that Maimonides as an interpreter of the Bible 
is a radical reinterpreter. He isn't recovering an older way of, uh, of interpreting the Bible the way he claims to be and thinks he is. Uh, I, I, at some level, I think that his, his biblical exegesis is wrong, but his theology is right. I think that Maimonides realized that if you really understand biblical monotheism correctly, the core of biblical monotheism is that God is radically different from everything else. It's not just about mm. biblical monotheism is not just about quantity. It's not just about how there's more, only one God. It's biblical monotheism is really about quality. Um, that God is radically different from everybody else. That's the idea that you see in, in, in Yechezkel Kaufman, uh, who I still think is you know, the greatest Jewish biblical scholar of, of modern times and the greatest Jewish biblical theologian of modern times. Once you realize that, it turns out that God cannot be made of matter or energy, that God cannot be in any way embodied. God can't be present in a particular place at a particular time. If God is totally radically ontologically different from the world that God creates, then God cannot have a body. I think it took Jews a long time to get there. Interestingly, it took pagan Greek philosophers shorter, to Christians and Muslims shorter, but it's, it's not really until, well, the idea shows up in Jewish thought in the work of Philo, who's roughly contemporaneous with Jesus, but Philo wasn't accepted as a, as a Jewish thinker by 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 other Jews, so that it didn't really matter that Philo was the first philosopher, first Jewish philosopher that came up with this. It didn't become a standard Jewish idea. Then it reappears in Judaism in the work of the philosopher for Sa'adia. And then a few generations later, Maimonides really works it out and, and wins. And, and, and his idea becomes the dominant idea um, throughout all forms of Judaism. And it became the dominant idea because it was right. Um, I think that he understood an implication of biblical monotheism that the biblical authors themselves were not themselves able to understand, and that even the rabbis weren't yet able to understand. So when I say that he's um, he's reading the Bible wrong, that doesn't mean I think his theology is wrong. He he is actually more loyal in some ways to biblical theology than to any biblical author. Um, so that that's thing number one that I, I, I would say that. Monotheism is an idea whose implications we come to appreciate more fully over time. Uh, and Maimonides is a crucial, crucial step in that, uh, in that growing realization about the full nature of monotheism. That's number one. And that, then you might ask the question, well, then why is the Bible worthwhile at all? I mean, if we've, have we superseded it? I don't think so. I, I think that the Bible is worthwhile as a record of theological debate and theological questioning and theological ans answers from the first set of sages who are important uh, to Judaism and Christianity. And they remain eternally important, but they're not the only important ones. Maimonides is also important, and modern Jewish theologians in the 20th century are also important. Um, that, And because Judaism is not a religion that believes in supersession, I, I would say that even ideas that appear in scripture that we've moved beyond, we should always believe that they have something to teach us. And the idea of divine embodiment, even though it's not literally true, I think it tells us something about the personal and concrete nature of the relationship between God and the people of Israel. Um, Maimonides' God, it may be more technically a correct view of God, but Maimonides does make God quite distant. 
And Maimonides' philosophical precision comes at a great religious cost. I mean, he's right. He's right. And, you know, these biblical authors were wrong on an intellectual level, but there's a real loss to his intellectual gain. And by reading the Bible and not taking literally what it says about divine embodiment and divine mystery, this mystery of fluidity, but understanding that there's something in the idea of divine embodiment and divine fluidity that allows us to relate to God as being potentially at least present on the planet Earth, that is still really, really crucial that if all we had was Maimonides, we would, we would have lost. And trying to recover those elements, while not necessarily taking those elements literally, that's a really important project for modern Jewish theology. I think responding to Maimonides, not totally rejecting him, but responding to him and trying to pick up what he lost along the way, that's the main project, really, of the entire career of Abraham Joshua Heschel, one of the greatest Jewish theologians of the 20th, of the 20th century. Um, in that sense, actually, my book on divine embodiment, it's really just a footnote to Heschel. I think while I was writing it, I didn't understand that fully. It was only when I was writing my next book about Revelation, which is very clearly a footnote to Heschel, that I realized that my book on divine embodiment was also a footnote to Heschel, because Heschel's entire career was a long, respectful polemic against Maimonides. And in a way, my book also on, on embodiment is a polemic against Maimonides, not in the sense that I'm saying Maimonides was wrong about the nature of God, but the intellectual realization that Maimonides was right comes at a terrible cost. Going back to Heschel helps us get some of that back. And I'm suggesting that going back to these biblical passages that describe a mysterious, ineffable God present on earth interacting with humans, um, even if we don't take it literally, it tells us something absolutely crucial about a Jewish understanding about God that with just Maimonides we might have lost. And it allows us to understand the Bible as an important religious book, not because it tells us doctrinal truths, but because the biblical authors, as they argue against each other, they're involved in a sacred conversation. And that's a conversation that we can continue as Jews and as Christians today. And continuing that conversation itself is a sacred activity. It is itself a form of worship. And to involve ourselves in that conversation doesn't require that we believe everything that the Bible says. It requires that we engage in conversation with great respect and humility um, towards, those, uh, towards those authors, even when we disagree with them. Is your head spinning just a little bit? Are you absorbed in these ideas? So many of them are deep within both Jewish and Christian mysticism. So if you want to dive down that rabbit hole of exploration, be my guest and have fun. Conversations like this are common here at IBC, whether in the wide variety of roundtable talks with scholars from around the world, or perhaps within our many other courses. If you have not yet connected with Israel Bible Center, consider joining our growing international group of students. From the comfort of your home and at your own pace, you can take classes. And within a year, you can earn a certificate in Jewish context and culture. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for all of the editing, the mixing, and adding in all the good music. 
And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. 